This episode of Inspired Souls is brought to you by Canadian Masters Athletics. CMA is a vibrant and welcoming community of Canadians aged 35 and over who share a passion for track and field, cross country, road running, and race walking. That's right, you can participate in athletics until you're in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. In fact, you're never too old to join CMA, only too young. How about that for a refreshing twist? But women in their mid-30s and beyond often face unique challenges such as peri- and post-menopause that can prevent them from being or staying active. This educational series from CMA will address many of these challenges head-on, remove barriers for women who may be struggling, and remind us that we're not alone. So without further delay, please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Nesha Yuxel. It's more than just hot flushes and night sweats. You know, what women tend to suffer from and have the most issues is probably those things like sleep, mood effects. 75% of us will have some degree of symptoms, but it's only like 25% or so that will be severe enough that they need to go and seek treatment. That was Dr. Nesha Yuxel, and this is episode 168 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Dr. Nesha Yuxel is a full professor with the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the College of Health Sciences at the University of Alberta. She also holds a cross appointment with Alberta Health Services and has been practicing in the areas of menopause and osteoporosis for nearly 25 years. She is passionate about bringing her clinical experience to inform her research and teaching. Dr. Yuxel is a Menopause Society certified practitioner and the current president for the Canadian Menopause Society. Basically, she is very qualified to be here talking about Menopause 101 with us, but she brings more than her brains to this conversation. Nesha is an experienced runner, and her resume includes not only several half and full marathons, but a 50K ultra marathon as well. If that weren't enough, she's also a postmenopausal woman, and she generously sprinkles stories from her own menopause transition into this chat. We begin by defining the terms menopause, perimenopause, and postmenopause, discussing common symptoms and why those might occur, and reviewing some of the treatment options available. Then we touch on best practices for having a healthy menopause, some of the new osteoporosis guidelines recently released by Osteoporosis Canada, and what women can get excited about during this stage of life. And now on to our conversation with Dr. Nesha Yuxel. Okay, so Nesha, it's great to have you with us today, and we're really excited to pick your brain about menopause. So why don't we just get to know you a little bit first, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to find yourself doing this work. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. So I, um, I'm currently a professor at the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Alberta. And I've been working in this area for probably close to 25 years, uh, starting in with a menopause clinic in Edmonton. And I also um, practice out of an osteoporosis clinic uh, as well. Mm. Um, so I do clinical practice, I do research in the area, and I also teach uh, in the area as well. Uh, just to let you know too, I'm the president of the Canadian Menopause Society uh, just of a few weeks ago. So Ooh, um, so that's another little <laughs> um, tidbit. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So that's just a little bit about myself. And I understand you're also a person who has a running background. Do you want us to tell do. us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I have been running over the, I don't know how many years. I'm not as active right now as far as training for anything. But um, yeah, I've done a number of uh, marathons, I think 10 or 11 marathons. And I've done one one ultra. <laughs> that's about it. Um, 50k, but, uh, but a number of uh, halves as well, quite a number of halves. And I've kind of switched over more to running half marathons than doing marathons. Mm. Just, I think time and yeah. the energy <laughs> that yeah. I have with just the, uh, you know, working and, and, you know, with kids and things like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, well, as you know, many of our listeners are runners. So it's great to know that you can understand maybe a little bit of what they're totally. going through. Um, oh, totally. related to some of the topics that we discuss. So let's just get into some definitions to start things off with. Can you just essentially define what is menopause, what is perimenopause, and then what is postmenopause? So menopause is the end of periods, menopause, cessation of periods. However, we diagnose menopause looking back. Um, so 
if somebody has had no periods for 12 months and it happens just naturally, then that's diagnosed as menopause. And any time after that 12 months, so one year is considered post-menopause. Um, but the time leading up to the menopause, so that last menstrual period, including that one year, is considered perimenopause. And that's when um, hormones are fluctuating. Uh, there can be changes in your menstrual periods. Uh, there could be a lot of the symptoms uh, as well experienced during that time. And I can talk a little bit more about that as well. Mm -hmm. And what ages do these typically happen? And I know it's really hard to say anything is normal these days, but do you, is there an yeah. age range that you tend to see some of these things? Because I guess just to think that we're talking to an athletic population, you could be 20 and not have your period for nine years. I'm thinking of of uh, somebody in the running world, Tina Muir, who's very famous. Like she didn't, she was an elite athlete and she didn't have her period for nine years. That's not menopause, right? <laughs> no, that's not menopause. That's due to other reasons with um and, and the intense activity level that can affect mm -hmm. um, normal, like your normal menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you're talking menopause, it's it's typically associated with yeah. a certain age then? So usually it's a certain age. Um, so the average age of menopause in North America is about 51 years of age. But there's a huge range. So 45 mm -hmm. to 55 is sort of that normal range for going into menopause. Now, perimenopause can occur anywhere from four to 10 years before that final menstrual period. So it's really different in, in different individuals. Um, if somebody goes into menopause early, that's before the age of 45 years. And if they're before, if they go into menopause before the age of 40 years, it's called premature menopause. Mm -hmm. Now, premature menopause, sometimes we call that primary ovarian insufficiency. So there's a number of reasons why someone might ha have that. It's, it's not very common, but it can happen. And the reasons for earlier premature menopause could be, uh, could be natural or it could also be induced. So very commonly you see it with surgical menopause when both ovaries are removed. And so both ovaries have to be removed to, um, you know, to be a surgical menopause. It could also be from chemotherapy. So if somebody's had breast cancer, for example, but the chemotherapy can be from radiation as well. So there's a okay. number of reasons why someone might go into an earlier premature menopause. The issue with an earlier premature menopause is normally they would have estrogens during that time, right? Yeah. Estrogen is really important for our bone health, our heart health, and not having the estrogens there, uh, then they have an earlier um, instance of things like cardiovascular disease, um, you know, osteoporosis also affects on the brain and cognition. Um, so that's why sometimes um, for a lot of these women, if they don't have contraindications to hormone therapy, we do recommend using, you know, hormone therapy in that situation because they'll need the estrogen, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great, great explanation. So you started to touch on it there, like what estrogen does for our body. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? So you mentioned bone health, heart health. Um, is there anything else with estrogen, but then also like where does progesterone fit into this picture? Yeah. So estrogen and progesterone both really important, obviously, in our bodies um, and uh, important hormones, very important hormones. And so Estrogen helps with many different, there's over like 200 estrogen receptor sites in our body. So think of any part of your body. It's, you know, it is estrogen helps with that. So during the normal menstrual cycle, we have estrogen release and the highest estrogen release is that first 14 days. And then at the end, uh, so a normal, you know, menstrual cycle about 28 days, for example. So the first 14 days is estrogen release. And then uh, with ovulation around day 14, it doesn't always happen that day, but <laughs> around that time, um, then, then we have the progesterone release during the last 14 days of, of the menstrual cycle. So estrogens are really important in, in you know, helping build the uh, uterine lining, for example, um, to kind of get it ready for pregnancy. And then pr progesterone comes along and kind of stabilizes that lining for, 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 for pregnancy and maintaining the pregnancy, for example. And if there's no pregnancy, then obviously we have 
you know, our menstrual bleed, right? But estrogens help with so many different parts of our body. So breast development, progesterone can also help with that. Our heart health, our um, bone health, really important with estrogens. Our brain health, really important too. Lots of effects on estrogens and neurotransmitters, our vaginal health, um, and many more. So one can see when there's typical amounts of these hormones in the body, you know, health is supported. And then as these hormones start to diminish in our body, (laughs) you know, brain health can be affected, bone health can be affected. So it's really clear when you're going through puberty as some, you know, these symptoms, body changes happen, you start your menses. It's not always so clear when you enter perimenopause. So how can one know that they're in it? Or is it only evident when you start to look back? Are there tests? Like, how does a person know? Now, that's a really good question. So for postmenopause, let's say somebody goes in through naturally, they're the right age. Postmenopause, we diagnose it, as I mentioned, 12 months without a period, no spotting, no bleeding during that, that 12 months. Then they're considered in postmenopause. We can do levels like things like follicle-stimulating hormone or FSH, but it's not diagnostic with that. We don't normally do it, necessarily need it for every patient or, or a woman to diagnose them with menopause. It's usually just based on the end of the periods um, with that. In perimenopause, it's a little bit more challenging because the hormones are really fluctuating. So you have fluctuating estrogen levels. You can have starting to have those lower uh, progesterone levels. They can fluctuate a little bit as well. So you can start seeing some of the menstrual cycle changes and that could be a determinant of, okay, you're probably in perimenopause. But some women have just symptoms and no cycle changes, or they have just cycle changes and no symptoms. So it it is a little bit more challenging. So it's looking at the overall kind of history of symptoms that they're experiencing. And I can talk about symptoms in a second and all the different types of symptoms that, that women can experience. So it's looking at that, looking at your patterns of your menstrual bleeds. So if they're really irregular, for example, they become more frequent or they become farther apart, heavier, lighter, like you can see it all over the place. And the only thing that's predictable about perimenopause is that it is unpredictable. That's pretty well it. Yeah. Um, so, so hormones levels don't don't really, you can't really do hormone levels in perimenopause because you can do FSH levels, but they're going to be up and down. You won't be able to tell that. So there's no rationale of doing an FSH level. Uh, So normally that wouldn't be diagnostic and estrogen levels would not be diagnostic either because they could be all over the place. So basically it's based on your symptoms and what's going on in your body. Now, if you, if somebody goes into um, like that premature menopause, so like that primary ovarian insufficiency, then there is benefit of doing things like, um, you know, like the FSH and estrogen levels and progesterone levels determines what's going on because they're, they're young, mm-hmm. right? And going right. through that. So there are certain times we would do, you know, different types of tests depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that we even go there with our thinking sometimes, like I need a test to tell me whether I'm all the way through menopause. When, if you look at it just as teenagers, like I have a teenage daughter and it's like, is she, is she going through puberty? Like, well, she's getting boobs and her hips are getting wider and she started her period. Her mood is changing. She's in puberty. (laughs) You know, that's what happens in perimenopause. You can see a lot of the same things. A lot of the women that we've seen in the clinic over the years, you know, they tell us, it's like, oh, you know, my boobs, I feel like my breast tenderness is bad and my bloating, why am I bloating? And why do I feel like I get water retention and and puffiness all over? And, you know, depending on in their cycle, they could see it, you know, maybe, it might have been maybe they had it with PMS and they had it a few days before their cycle, like their menstrual bleed, for example, their period. Um, but now they're seeing it earlier, like in their menstrual cycle, right? Like yeah. so once yeah. it's like one or two weeks before their their period. Or maybe they hadn't seen it in years since they went through puberty, and now it's like, why am I feeling what I felt when I was, you know, in my teens? So, right. so we yeah. see that and, and uh, it's, there's so much o- overlap and similarities in what you see in, in puberty as well as in, yeah. um, in like puberty in reverse. <laughs> in reverse. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a good way well, of saying it. Yeah. And you've, you beautifully started to speak to some of the symptoms, but let's, let's maybe uh, go there next. So what would be sort of these classic symptoms to know, like I'm in perimenopause, 
versus menopause? Like, are those different? Like once somebody is, you know, in their 60s or 70s, do they have symptoms anymore? Or just maybe talk us through the whole gamut of what somebody might feel. Yeah. So there's a lot of symptoms. Um, There's probably 34, 35 types of symptoms that have been, you know, assessed and there might be more. Um, But uh, so there's a lot of symptoms. They can happen in perimenopause and they can happen in postmenopause. The mm. only real difference in peri and post is, is the menstrual cycle changes. Okay. But a lot of the symptoms I'm going to talk about can be in either one. So okay. you're telling me if you pass that 12-month day and you're now officially in menopause, the symptoms don't magically go away? <laughs> so that's a really good question. <laughs> um, they don't, it, it, and everyone's so different. It's, it, it's so different. So let me talk a little bit about duration of symptoms, and then I'll go into all the different types of symptoms. So the average duration now that's really interesting with studies that are coming out is about between seven and eight years is the average duration of symptoms. And a lot of that's because it occurs in perimenopause and then can continue for a number of years after uh, your last menstrual period as well and postmenopause. Some women will have it longer, so it can go up to 10 or 12 years, especially if they start experiencing it earlier in the, in the um, perimenopause. But the average after that last menstrual period is about 4.5 years, but everyone's so different after that last, men- last menstrual period, right? So different. Some women can still, still have like, you know, those night sweats and sleep issues, even in the post. Some things like a lot of the mood, that's what I find in the perimenopause where people are having a lot of those mood swings and, you know, the brain fog. I've, I found it even in myself. It, it felt it, it was better. It was a little more stable because mm-hmm. those hormone fluctuations weren't happening. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, is some women experience things like even migraines because of hormone right. fluctuations during the perimenopause. Some of those stable because the estrogens aren't fluctuating as well. So okay. it really depends on... What is causing their symptoms? Is it the hormone fluctuation with the estrogen or is it the low estrogen? Mm. And then your body also gets used to some of the low estrogen as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can go over a little bit about the different types of symptoms. Um, So we think of often the classic is um, hot flushes and night sweats, right? We think of, we call them often vasomotor symptoms. So that's the classic symptom that we think of. The, the issue with a lot of um, those types of symptoms, especially night sweats, is it keeps it can wake us up. So we yeah. have a, can have a lot of sleep issues, very fragmented sleep, the inability to fall back asleep. It could be from night sweats. It can also be from low estrogens because estrogens help with things like the REM sleep, the deepness of sleep. Uh, we can have a lot of mood issues if we're not sleeping. You know, we're going to have feel fatigue, we're going to feel tired, we're going to feel like we can't concentrate, but also low estrogen or fluctuating estrogens can also affect that and our ability to think. So we call it like, you know, things like brain fog. I just, I, I, I can't concentrate and focus. And I can tell you, like I teach at the university and when I was going through my perimenopause, like I couldn't think of words to say Right. And, and the students were really good because I was teaching about menopause. <laughs> and so they would be like, oh, okay. And then I'd be like, sounds like this word sounds like, and they'd be like, they, and so they would like try to guess for me. So they were wonderful. So, um, but you know, it can be very stressful. And then I would feel anxious because normally I'm used to talking and then all the ones I can't think of a word and then I get anxious. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the cognition, the thought, and then the mood. And the mood could be, you know, up and down. It could be irritable, anxious, um, can be depressive symptoms. And they do tend to be a little worse um, during the perimenopause. And then there's a lot of other symptoms too. We talked about migraines. Some people have like migraines, musculoskeletal things people don't often think of, like joint, joint aches. Yeah. They start happening more frequently during that time too. So there's a, 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 like even burning tongue or mm. those kinds that people don't even think about can can happen or tingling on the bottom of your feet. Um, yes. And then obviously vaginal issues can be a big thing too. And that tends to be more common with the post-menopause as, you know, that doesn't often get better. Sometimes it can continue mm. to get bad. And that's things like vaginal dryness and painful intercourse and um, um, frequent urinary tract infections or bladder infections and things mm. like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a lot of symptoms. Oh, well, you, um, you just mentioned there, we had, we had one of our 
uh, people that we interviewed about their own experience talk about that. It, you said itchy on the bottom of your feet. And I think she was saying itchy um, on her shoulders. She's like that deep sensation of crawling under your skin. And like before I started reading up on this, I had never heard of this one. You you, you know, everybody's heard of the hot flashes, the night sweats and, and some of these other ones that you're listing. But what in the world is underneath the mechanism for why the skin would itch? Do you know? It's a good question. Yeah, um, it's a it's a good question, and I know I've heard you know of different itching. Um, sometimes with the under the feet, it could also be like a burning sensation, so it feels like itching. Yeah. I don't know the exact mechanism, but we do know that um, with estrogen loss, especially in post menopause, you know it does affect like normal uh, collagen production, like in our skin, mm-hmm. and that over time can cause dryness and thinning of the of the skin and dryness and that's why you see things that happen vaginally too there's less in the vaginal area there's less blood flow to the area there's the dryness is an issue and then you can actually see structural changes the Mm. vaginal thinning of the walls right now i i know that's over time i can see the, the the itching now because it could be dry but it's hard to say why that Particular, yeah. you know, this Elders, is just a I don't thought, know. <laughs> but could it be part of the whole vasomotor thing, right? Because you know, if you get cold and you start to, uh, you can get that Possibly. cold urticaria. Often, um, feelings yeah. of tingling can be those yeah. perfect vascular symptoms, right? So that's a good point because um, it's yeah, that is a good point. It could be from that as well, absolutely, you know. because you know, it's our bodies, our thermostats out of whack, you know, with the vasomotor mm-hmm. symptoms, and so our ability. to to, you know, kind of our body doesn't detect the same way. Like it over overreacts to things. So if it's just a little hot, we feel like it's really hot. And so we start sweating, yeah. right? So yeah. that's what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what's also really interesting, I should tell you, is that they've identified a new mechanism of how um, those hot flushes and night sweats happen. And it's a, it's in our brain and there is certain neurons that become active, overactive when we don't have enough estrogens. And they're called, it's a good name, it's called the candy neurons. And what's candy? really- Candy, yeah, but they don't <laughs> spell normally like a candy, but, but it's called like a candy neuron. And what's really fascinating with this is that now we have drugs that are targeting those candy neurons. So they just came out in the US this last year, and we're probably going to see it in Canada in the next couple of years. So these new mechanism towards uh, or new drugs that are towards this mechanism that's been identified. So we know that hot flushes and night sweats are just not in our heads, right? <laughs> like something's happening in our, yeah. in our brain. So maybe there is some connection with that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, But you mentioned, so talking about um, night sweats, for example. So yes, vasomotor symptoms can be driven hormonally, right? Like by the lowering estrogen and, and all of that. But then the trickle down effect is that now I'm not sleeping well. So is it the estrogen that causes the poor sleep or is it because you're up in the night and anyone, whether they're in menopause, perimenopause or not, would be impacted by poor sleep, right? You you could be a 20 year old male and (laughs) be impacted by, or a new mom and and it has nothing to do with hormones. It just has to do with the circumstances. So it's like these things like could pile on and cause secondary and tertiary effects that may not necessarily have to do with this time in life or the fluctuating hormones, but just like all together are causing like a, a little bit of a shit storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, there's combination of things and, mm-hmm. you know, when we often, um, you know, when we're educating women in the clinics, it's also about looking at your overall what's happening with you and, and, and what we usually hear is that, you know, th- the effects of hormone fluctuations or low estrogens levels um, it kind of affects how they can handle with what's going on in their life, whatever. whatever. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so if you look at sleep, if they already had issues with sleep, this time could be, it could get worse during this time, especially if they're dealing with hormone fluctuations or a lot of night sweats where they're having, they're waking up and then they're not able to go back to sleep because all at once now... They, they're woken up. So mm-hmm. s- there are other sleep issues. It's not just from hormones. So right. you have to know that it's not. So when somebody is looking at the sleep 
you know, and, and kind of assessing what's going on with sleep, those, all of those things would be looked at the same time. So what other, you know, sleep issues have you had? What other medical conditions do you have that can affect it? What medications are you on that could affect it? So, mm-hmm. so it's a lot more complex than just hormones, but right. hormones will impact that in the sense of if you're getting a lot of night sweats at night and waking up, some people can fall back asleep, but some people yeah. can't. And that's that fragmented sleep. We also know there is a relationship with estrogens and that REM sleep, the quality of sleep. We do there is a bit with that as well. So so mm-hmm. there is some factors with, yeah. with hormones for sure. But you got you're like really important point. You got to look at everything right. around you. Yeah. And yeah. that's affecting it. it. Exactly. And we had somebody else mention this, like she thought that she was in, in reds or red S like um, low um, energy availability and that that's what was causing her symptoms. And then it turned out that no, it was actually perimenopause. But I think the reverse can be true where we just start to be like, oh, I've got so many symptoms. It's just all perimenopause, but you could miss something serious, right? Or, you know, for example, red S or a thyroid issue or something like that. But it, but it also could just be normal aging stuff that's happening too. Yeah. So did you want to comment a on a little bit of that? Yeah. You know, and, and um, maybe I'll comment on the first part initially about, you know, looking at other medical conditions that could be affecting it. So you mentioned about thyroid and um, especially people who have low thyroid hormone levels, uh, some of there's a lot of overlap in types of symptoms. And so you can feel, um, you know, that tired fatigue from not having enough thyroid, you could feel you could it can impact your um, menstrual cycles as well. And also hair loss, right? So we often will do it at TSH level to determine if you know, if their thyroid levels are low, and then we would um, replace it, obviously, if it is low. So that would be one of the first things we would want to be looking at, especially if there's some overlap. The other thing that I find that's an overlap, and it might be also important for a lot of your runners or athletes out there, is low iron. Low iron can be common, and um, a lot of fatigue and tiredness from low iron levels. So looking at that first, and then also if you know if the iron stores like your ferritin. Uh, stores, which are the iron stores, are are low, then, you know, replacing and getting that, um, you know, back to kind of normal would be important, right? Um, Also looking at your diet with that. So we want to look at, you know, other medical conditions that can be impacting, you know, your overall function. Uh, One other one with sleep is sleep apnea. Sleep Mm -hmm. apnea can also become not often diagnosed, right? And um, so, you know, looking at those symptoms for sleep apnea, like if you're snoring a lot or your you know, partner says you snore, whatever, um, and, and getting some of that assessed as well, because that can make you tired and fatigued during the day too. Right. Very good points you just brought up. Okay. So we now have outlined a whole lot of symptoms that can happen during this phase of life. So let's talk about treatment. Now, now there's many different types of treatments, but maybe we can, and you just go right to hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy. I know the terms are changing uh, depending on where you live. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is the proper term for that? And then, you know, maybe a little bit of the history. I know hormone replacement therapy for a while has really not been favored, but apparently now... Um, we're recognizing there are some benefits. So can you just talk to us a little bit about all of that? Sure. Um, Maybe I'll start with just what the approach would be for management, and then I'll talk about hormone therapy. So generally for for management of of symptoms, we have hormone therapy, and I'll talk about that. Uh, We also have non-hormonal prescription medications, which I can also mention. And we also have lifestyle measures and things to help with symptoms. And then... um, other things like cognitive behavioral type of therapy, and I'll talk. I can talk about that. So hormone therapy, um, we we re- do refer to it as menopausal hormone therapy in Canada. So you may see it as MHT. I'll just refer to it as hormone therapy here, but a lot of times you'll see it as MHT. So menopausal hormone therapy. In some places in the in in the world, like in the UK, they still call it hormone replacement therapy. That's how we used to call it here. So you'll see it as HRT in the UK. In the States, sometimes they'll refer to it as just hormone therapy or HT or MHT. Uh, the reason we've 
gone away from calling it uh, replacement therapy, like hormone replacement therapy in, you know, North America is because we're not really replacing the hormones to the same level as in premenopause. We're replacing enough, we're giving enough to help with symptoms, but we're no, nowhere are we giving as much dosing as to get the levels that you had in premenopause. Mm-hmm. It's just enough to help with those symptoms. So that's why we've gone away from it. Now, you may still see it being called hormone replacement therapy in uh, younger people. So let's say that premature menopause, earlier premature menopause, because sometimes with that, we have to replace it to the levels that you know might have been before because they may be more symptomatic. And then we also have to be thinking about preventing you know, heart disease and osteoporosis and later in life and cognition effects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the, the, the terminology. And would you want me to talk a little bit about um, what it is? And then I could talk about some of the Women's Health Initiative study, which Perfect. was caused a lot of publicity Absolutely. and issues with, yes. with hormone therapy and fear with hormone therapy. Um, so when we talk about hormone therapy, um, we're talking about the use of estrogen and progesterone together. And so most women will need both estrogen and progesterone unless you have had a hysterectomy. So no, uh, you don't have your uterus. Um, then it's just be estrogen alone. And so estrogen helps with a lot of the symptoms that you'd be having. And then the progesterone helps prevent the buildup of the uterine lining. Cause if you just gave estrogen by itself in the uterus, it'll start to build up. Oh. But progesterone has some other benefits. Progesterone can help, especially if it's like the natural progesterone, micronized progesterone can help with sleep and can help with some mood effects as well. So it does have, and, and some, even some hot flashes, but, um, but it, 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 the main reason for it is for the preventing that, that buildup of the lining is the main reason we, we do use it. So we would give, um, um, give both if you have your uterus and then um, just estrogen alone if you've had a hysterectomy. There's a lot of fear um, of, of use of hormone therapy, and it's kind of gotten a bad rap. And this goes back to the Women's Health Initiative study that was published back in 2002, so quite a number of years ago um, already. And um, that caused a lot of fear. And a lot of that fear came from... Um, the risks, right, that we're seeing in the estrogen progesterone arm of the study and increased risk of things like heart attacks and stroke and breast cancer were all the, you know, the risks. But the there were some benefits too. It reduced fractures, which was a good, good benefit. It had a decrease in colorectal cancer. This caused a lot of publicity, back then because there was so like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it causes heart attacks. We thought it would prevent heart disease and and it's causing heart attacks and breast cancer. Um, But unfortunately, um, this was over-publicized and it was really taken out of context. The study was done to look at prevention. It wasn't done to look at symptom improvement. So preventing Mm -hmm. like of heart disease, that's why it was actually set up. It wasn't set up to look for symptom improvements. In fact, the majority of women in the study, the average age was 63 years of age because they had to be non-symptomatic and right to be in the study. So they weren't looking at symptoms. And so it's not the same population that would be symptomatic. If you look at our, you know, women in their 40s and 50s, not the same women. So different, different, Mm -hmm. you know, risk factors. Someone who is in their 60s is going to have different risk of things like heart attacks or blood clots, for example. You're just going to have a different risk for that, you know, later. Mm -hmm. When the estrogen alone arm, there was another estrogen alone for people who have had hysterectomy in the WHI. Um, When that was published, there wasn't no increase in heart attacks and breast cancer, but there was very little publicity. It came out two years later. So this has caused a lot of kind of controversy about hormone therapy. It's, you know, there's been fear and that has not changed, unfortunately, the fear factor with that. Luckily, we have so much more information about hormone therapy now. And there's been a lot of more analysis of the Women's Health Initiative, the WHI. Mm -hmm. And so what we have seen with those reanalysis is that that if, if hormone therapy is started you know, less than 10 years since your last menstrual period, or if you're less than 60 years of age, then you don't have that same risk. 
And it's pretty safe to use in that. And so a lot of the guidelines are recommending, so for example, in Canada, recommending as first line for someone who has bothersome, you know, hot flashes um, or night sweats or other symptoms. And um, as as the first line, if for those bothersome symptoms, if you don't have contraindications and if you're less than 10 years since your last menstrual period or less than 60, and it can also be considered in perimenopausal women too. Okay. What um, would contraindications be? Um, so some of the contraindications, and there's a number of different ones, you know, things like if you have sort of bleeding, like we call abnormal uterine bleeding. So a lot of bleeding that hasn't been assessed, let's say by a, you know, a gynecologist or a specialist to say, okay, what's, what's going on here. Um, another contraindication is that if you've had um, breast cancer, so you've been a cancer survivor. If you um, have had a heart attack already or had a stroke in the past, so if you have like cardiovascular disease to that extent, had a blood clot in the past, that's another contraindication. And then if you have like liver disease, like severe liver disease, because it's metabolized in the liver. So those are some examples. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Those are the main ones, but... Mm-hmm. And and with the breast cancer, it would be that individual has had breast cancer yes. or they have breast cancer risk because of like a family history. Yeah. So the a total contraindication would be that if they've had breast cancer themselves, um, if they have a family history, we tend to look at a few things for the family history and it's more of an assessment with, you know, with their primary care provider. So we look at things like who had the breast cancer and what age did they have the breast cancer? So usually we consider, you know, first degree relatives. Um, and so like if their mother had a breast cancer and if their mother especially had it before they went um, into menopause, because those tend to be more like, you know, estrogen positive or hormone sensitive, then, then that would be, you know, and then they look at the number often it's like two or more first degree relatives that have had, you know, but again, it's really an assessment, um, you know, looking at the whole picture before making that decision. So it's not a total contraindication. It's looking to make sure that they don't have that extra risk. That makes sense. Okay, good. So that's on the hormone side. You mentioned that there was non-hormonal therapies. So could you talk a little bit about what those ones are? Yeah, so um, non-hormonal prescription options include um, things like um, some of the antidepressants. So we can use like um, certain SSRIs and then SNRIs, like uh, there's a few different ones that can be considered. Um, We can also consider gabapentin um, is, and gabapentin can be helpful, especially for the sleep, you know, if you're not sleeping as well. Clonidine has been around for a long time. Uh, not as good evidence for it, but it's been around. So that's another one. And then um, starting to use things like oxybutynin is another one that um, some specialists are starting to use, you know, for for the symptoms. And uh, so those are some of them. And now there will be new ones, like as I mentioned, targeting that um, that the candy neuron I was telling you about, which isn't like, they're not out yet um, in in Canada, but um, there will be some new uh, non-hormonal prescription options coming out later. Mm -hmm. Now we had one woman mention about adaptogens. Do you know anything about, about those? No, like ashwagandha and okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't really know much about those, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, one one other thing I was going to mention, there are some options for hormone therapy that don't require like extra progesterone. So there is some products out there. And then there's another one like Tibolone. There's a few different products for hormone therapy as well that don't require both estrogen and progesterone. So so there's a whole gamut. And one other one I didn't mention is using like vaginal products, vaginal estrogen products, if for just those um, local, like if you have a lot of vaginal dryness and those kinds of things, there are just vaginal products for that. You initially, when you were outlining all the different treatment options, also included some lifestyle or mental health strategies, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you want to elaborate a bit on that? Yeah. So, you know, some of the lifestyle 
factors that, you know, we talk about um, to help with a lot of the symptoms include things like, especially if you have a lot of hot flushes or night sweats, is, um, you know, just common sense, practical things like, you know, dressing in layers, wearing like breathable clothing. Um, A good thing is to identify what your triggers are, because everyone's a little different in what those triggers. So what makes it worse? (laughs) Like, you know, did you have some alcohol the night before? Did that make it worse? Right. Or, you know, do you have that hot tea and that, you know, once you start having a hot flash. So just really looking at those triggers. Um, Other things we talk about is smoking uh, cessation and trying to quit smoking. Smoking actually increases the breakdown of estrogen, the metabolism estrogen. So actually smokers go into menopause a few years earlier. They start having symptoms a few years earlier because it does do that. So smoking cessation helps with a number of things, including symptoms, but also helps with other things like, you know, the heart disease risk, you know, reducing right. that or, or bone health. Right. So there's a number of things. I feel like we've come so far on the smoking thing. Like when I was a kid, you would hear it all the time, like about quitting smoking and you don't really hear it as much anymore. Cause I think we've done a pretty good job for the most part, you I know, getting, getting yeah. people to at least recognize the risks of it and, and to take part in smoking cessation. But uh, it's, it's almost like when you mentioned it, I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. That would be a big one. <laughs> Yeah, that is a big one. And we try to, you know, talk to women about that, you know, sometimes it's hard. I know it's hard to to quit, but it just understanding what happens with in multiple places, you know, areas, I guess. Um, So yeah, so those are some of the lifestyle things. Other things include um, just, you know, alcohol and maintaining, you know, the following like not excessive alcohol um, because it can affect your symptoms but um, also bone health is a factor with bone health and cardiovascular health and all of that and uh, so those are some of the things Um, so also for cognitive um, behavioral therapy has been really helpful so so in complementary when we're talking about complementary therapies the one that's been shown to be the most effective is actually cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for even hot flushes and, and, and night sweats. Now, it's been shown for so many different things like mood, um, CBTI for insomnia, for sleep ones, right? So many different things. But it's also been shown for those hot flushes and night sweats, someone who's having significant and can help with a number of those symptoms. So, so that's the one that we often really recommend because there's actually really good studies to say that it actually lowers it. Even things like mindfulness programs and stress reduction programs kind of help. And it's also how you manage your symptoms, how you think about your symptoms, right? right? So they can all be um, very beneficial Mm -hmm. with it. Um, Things like yoga, stress reduction, like all of those are good. And exercise, I didn't mention about probably yet, but exercise can help with manage your your symptoms as well, right? And I know you'll have like sessions on exercise, so I won't go too much into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the nutrition, I know you'll have sessions on nutrition too. So all -hmm. really important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're covering all the bases here, which is wonderful. So, and and you're talking about, because, you know, even why would you take hormone therapy in perimenopause? It's to prevent or to reduce your risk of osteoporosis and heart disease and all of these things later down the road. So you've started to talk about steps that you can take, habits you can put into place to have a healthy post-menopause experience you mentioned when we were discussing before we hit record about there's some new guidelines out and you you work in um in the osteoporosis world for a little yes. bit in bone health um yes. did you want to talk about some of those new guidelines sure so osteoporosis canada has new guidelines out for uh, management like of osteoporosis uh that just came out back in uh sometime in october and um and so the the new guidelines kind of highlight, you know, things like screening, they highlight, you know, management, exercise, nutrition, and what kind of, med- like what kind of um, medications mm-hmm. and, and starting and, and those kinds of things. So, um, so some of the 
a little bit of the changes from before. So the last guidelines were in 2010. So it's been a number of years since the last guidelines. Um, so some of the changes that have come about are, um, you know, one of the things that they're really uh, looking at for nutrition is with calcium, um, the amounts of calcium for women. I'll just talk for women. Anyone over the age of 50 is still at 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium. It's 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 um, consistent with what health care. Canada recommends, but trying to do that as much in the diet. So mm-hmm. working with your diet and only adding in supplements if you don't have enough in your diet or can't, you know, tolerate it in your diet, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and Osteoporosis Canada has wonderful resources and they'll have more coming up on their website as well later, but they have a calcium calculator. So you can actually calculate out how much calcium uh, you get and then can, can add in the supplements only if you need it or start adding in, you know, food that increases that yeah. calcium amount to get to the 1200 milligrams. Uh, for vitamin D, there's been a bit of a change for vitamin D. The vitamin D recommendations is similar now to what Health Canada also recommends. Before, they used to recommend 800 to 2,000 international units of vitamin D, but now they've gone in and and the recommendations based on the evidence is just, you know, what the um, current Health Canada recommendations are. So for, for women up to the age of 70, so 50 to 70, for example, um, is about 600 international units and then over 70 is 800 international units. But because it's hard to get vitamin D in a lot of foods, um, the recommendation is just to take a 400 international unit for most of us, especially living in North America and especially Canada. Um, And, you know, the difficulty of getting it from the sunshine at certain times of the year. Um, So we just recommend to do the 400 and then trying to increase through diet. And there's helpful tools on Osteoporosis Canada as well for that. And then some individuals may need more depending on their risk factors, if they have vitamin D deficiency and they may need more. Right. So that's some of the recommendations. The other recommendation is just with screening. Um, So, you know, if you have risk factors for osteoporosis, anyone over the age of 50 should start be thinking about that. Like, do you have any risk? Do you have medical conditions, Mm -hmm. you know, like rheumatoid arthritis that might increase that risk, or Mm -hmm. you've already had a broken a bone, for example, had a fracture, Um, you know, so especially over the age of 40. And there's a number of them. I just don't have time to talk about all of them right now. But, um, but anyone over the age of 70 should automatically get a bone mineral density. And then if you're younger than 70 depends on the risk factors. Uh, So if you're thinking of a lot of women who are in their 50s, um, if you have a couple of those risk factors, you should get a bone mineral density. And would that be like a DEXA scan or? That's a DEXA scan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, That's a DEXA scan. And they're fairly accessible. Like you can just go and get those done. Like I'm sure you can, you're Healthcare. Depends on the province. Oh, okay, because I know I've yeah. had, I've personally had one, and I'm in Manitoba, so I just rolled yeah. up to a place and paid my money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it depends on the province that you're in, as far as um, accessibility. Uh, in Alberta, for example, where I'm, I'm at, uh, it is pretty accessible. Like you know, uh, it can be ordered um, from you know your primary care provider can can order a, a DEXA. Uh, the the repeat DEXA you can't. that's the only one it's like it's in two years you can't get one before the two years um with that for for what's covered in alberta but i don't know of all the other provinces exactly but it it does vary yeah but for the most part it's pretty easy access all right so what is the one thing that we get wrong about the menopause transition from the media from social media tell us what your thoughts are on that I think the about the actual transition, the menopause transition, I think there's a few things that we get wrong in the sense or how it's kind of highlighted. It's more than just hot flushes and night sweats. You know, what women tend to suffer from and have the most issues is probably those things like sleep, yeah. mood effects. Um, the other thing is that uh, during perimenopause, I think we get that wrong a lot of times in the sense that a lot of women have symptoms during the perimenopause throughout their 40s, not caught sometimes because they may not even have changes in their menstrual periods to, to kind of identify. So you can have menopausal symptoms without changes in your men- menstrual um, periods, or you can have menstrual period changes without those symptoms, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that those symptoms can be 
long. They can take a long time as I'm, for some women, it could be more than others, but it doesn't affect all women the same way. We're all very individual. So some of us will sail through and, you know, and then others will have more issues. 75% of us will have some degree of symptoms. That's, that's, that's the, a, the what's been reported. 75% <laughs> it will have some degree, but it's only like 25% or so that will be severe enough that they need to go and seek treatment um, with that. The other thing that's we do get is, um, and, and there's more attention coming about, is the effects on the function of women during perimenopause and postmenopause. And the, the function of ability to just cope with your life and be able to manage, right? And a lot of work is being looked at for work productivity. And the Menopause Foundation of Canada, for example, did a report. This just recently came out on um, World Menopause Day. And they they reported that the modeling of um, lost wages and other productivity things, $3.6 billion is lost each year due to wow. menopausal symptoms um, from a number of reasons, right? So that's a huge effect. So there's more and more awareness on how this affects in the workplace. And we don't tend to talk about it. You know, yeah. we we, there's a shame about talking about it and, and hear, and then, you know, you, you worry that your employer is not going to hear and listen, and then you can't function as well sometimes. Like, you know, I talked about like when I teach, right. <laughs> I know I can't function as well. And, and, and so it's just having that workplace that supports that and yeah. understands that. Right? And that's and honestly, so- that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast, like just to kind of normalize the conversation. Like we had one woman that we interviewed and we, I think we asked a question like, has anything surprised you or challenged you during this time? And she was like, yeah, like I didn't know anything about perimenopause until perimenopause came and like kicked my butt. Like, isn't that a bit of a problem? Like, isn't there an education gap there when we educate young people about what's going to happen with their bodies? It's almost like we stopped too early (laughs) and we didn't. Well, and we only educate women too. What about the men that we're working with? What about the men that we're Mm -hmm. living with? You know, like when you talk about function and productivity, who are we most shame? you know, who do we feel the most shame with? It's often our male colleagues or, you know, mm-hmm. um, people that we, we don't want to admit these symptoms to. So mm-hmm. I know our audience for this series is most likely largely women, but at the same time, we need to normalize this with, I hope men will listen. I, think. I hope male yeah. coaches and Absolutely. partners and everybody, uh, ha- everyone has something to learn through this, I think. Such good points. Um, I so I you know I I really like agree with all you know because we teach about puberty, we teach about all of those things at school, you know, and but you know especially like during you know like junior high they like the talks right on and probably elementary starts in yeah. elementary now, um, but you know but we don't talk about menopause and even in our medical curriculum and healthcare professional curriculum, it's not talked about very much. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to teach it because it's an area of interest and I practice in it, but, but you see a lot of places not focusing that much. And mm-hmm. we're trying to do a lot more of that with the Canadian Menopause Society, for example, is bring awareness for health professionals, for example, yeah. but also for the public too, to kind of know that, you know, these are things, understanding the symptoms that you're experiencing. Um, and then also helping, you know, also t- teaching men as well, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. like, you know, learning about it maybe in school so that it's both, you yeah. know, we, we, we see it all, all everyone's aware of, of what can happen during that time. Yeah. Uh, we often talk about also bringing in your partners in with, you know, if you're, if you're attending a menopause session, or education session mm-hmm. and and learning more about that. So yeah, yeah. multiple um, things I think that is really important to, to yeah. highlight. Um, go ahead. Well, one of our women said, um, I started to realize that my menopause was our menopause because <laughs> she was saying that like her partner was kind of, he thought also that she had brain cancer or something when she was going through all this like headache investigation and, and whatnot. So um, it is important to remember that it, it yeah, it may be impacting you, uh, uh, 
woman, but it has, again, ripple effects out to the other people in your life. So this knowledge, knowledge is power kind of thing is, is so important. And, and I thought we could maybe leave on that note, like what can we do beyond educating ourselves to feel kind of more empowered in this phase of life. And if I could perhaps take it even one step further, what can we get excited about in this phase of life? Is there anything like, can you leave us on an optimistic note? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I think the key thing is really like listening to podcasts like this Mm -hmm. (laughs) is like the first. So congratulations Mm -hmm. on um, having this podcast. And I think is just becoming informed, you know, yeah. educating yourself, becoming informed. Um, you know, there are resources out there. There are places. And so Canadian Menopause Society, for example, is a is a place to go to. And and one of the things that we're hoping to do is bring more of those types of information that that women want. Yeah. Uh, the Menopause Foundation of Canada is doing some great advocacy work as well. And there's some great information on their website too. So mm-hmm. um, I would I would recommend going there. If you're interested in more like with the bone health and osteoporosis, Osteoporosis Canada has a fantastic website and great information too. So there are places for that. There's also um, SOGC also has the menopause and you website, which is Mm. really good. So there are places to go. Um, the menopause society is the ne- previously known NAMS has great information. So there's mm-hmm. lots of places. So finding those places also just starting that conversation with your healthcare provider. You know, we, we, we don't often like even get started like, you know, Oh, I only have one problem that I can talk about. No, talk about all the different sort of things that you may be experiencing. There are symptom sheets that you can download like symptom, you know, trackers, mm-hmm. things like that. Now uh, there's one on the menopause foundation of Canada that you can download to highlight those symptoms and then take that in to okay. your healthcare provider so that you are empowered to say, this is the symptoms I'm having. Right. You know, these are the things that I've kind of read about or I heard about. These are the guidelines. Um, consider all your healthcare providers too. You know, um, when we think of primary care providers, your, your family physician, your nurse practitioner, but there's also pharmacists and dietitians out there that can support physiotherapists that can support you in different, different places. So I, I want you to think of the whole interdisciplinary thing uh, with it. There is a website that you may be interested in. It's called uh, MQ6, MQ6 website. You can just Google it. And it was um, a colleague of mine from the board of um uh, board of directors on the Canadian Menopause Society who developed a family physician. Hmm. And it's it developed for healthcare providers, but um, women can also go in and there's a link for information for women. And they could look at, you know, um, it kind of gives them a screen of, are they having those symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. And and what and, and what options there are, because it talks about all the different options. So it's a really good site, site as well. And what to be excited about? I think it's, maybe I can tell you a little bit about myself with that. And during that time, I think it made me really reflect on my overall health at the time. Uh You know, what I, what I need to do for myself to be healthy, you know, understanding the symptoms that I might have been experiencing. Cause I, you know, I remember having the brain fog. I remember having um, the anxious moments during, especially perimenopause. I remember all of these. It actually helped me reflect on those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, obviously I work in this area, so I knew kind of, but it really did take, I took a moment and I'm like, okay, what do I need to do for myself? So I make sure, you know, screening for mammograms right. or screening, you know, getting my blood pressure checked, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. cholesterol, like all of those factors that are so important. Um, Actually doing the Headspace app or, the, you know. Yeah, just things that, and everyone's going to be, different things are going to help for different people, for right? Sure. And yeah. that's, it's just like finding what works for you, mm-hmm. right? That's the, that's the important part. What's going to help me? And I can also tell you that, um, with postmenopause, because I am in postmenopause, is that things are a little more. I feel more stable a little bit. Not the hormone fluctuations, because that yeah. that affected me more. Was those hormone fluctuations? So I feel more like it. You know, so some things are a bit, you know, more like that way. Yeah. But again, everyone's a little different. So I think mm-hmm. it's like it. 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 It's. It's, just, it's definitely a change, but it can also be a really powerful time. You know, to really say, okay. What, what do I need to do for myself? Yeah, I think that is oh such a good point. And, you know, we 
at any phase of life, you can stand to be reflective. Who am I? What what do I value? And live more in alignment with that. But what I'm really hearing from doing this series is that this time of life is almost like a bit of a catalyst for that. If you choose to see it as an opportunity. <laughs> I guess there can be a lot of, I said this before, like doom and gloom narrative, like, oh, this is terrible. And that is terrible. But not everything is terrible. And it's like the mindset that you bring to it can be um, everything, really, right? Whether you see something as an opportunity or a, or a, a threat, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, I, Absolutely. We so appreciate, much. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you so much. I've learned so much in this oh, hour conversation. <laughs> um, we appreciate your expertise and, and actually these little snippets of your own personal experience that you threw in there were, were really, um, I, I really do appreciate you sharing openly about those too. So thank you again for joining us today and um, best of luck with everything you've got coming up. Sounds like you have a very, very full life. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. And um, I, I love the conversation. So it was wonderful. Thank you very much. Huge thanks to Canadian Masters Athletics for sponsoring this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you love running, jumping, throwing, or walking and want to be part of a supportive community of like-minded people, then head on over to canadianmasters.ca to learn more or check out our show notes for their social links. We'd love to continue the conversation on the CMA Facebook group and Instagram. 